0: Hi everyone, welcome here again. Um, and before we jump into the message for today, uh, again back in Genesis chapters 1 to 11, our series on identity, I've got two important announcements I want to make. And the first one is that starting next week, uh, next week, starting Thursday, I think that's the 18th. So next week, Thursday the 18th, uh, I'm going to start a two week series on, mini series on hell. And uh, we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about hell. And we'll have uh, time for lots of Q&A and stuff afterwards, like we always do. But we're going to take a short break from the Genesis series. Now, I'm also going to post a paper. I've I've finally uh, managed to finish. I've got a comprehensive paper filled with tons and tons and tons of scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, with regards to what the Bible has to say about hell. I'm going to post that to the website on Tuesday, February 16th. So that's a couple of days before uh, I start preaching it. So that those of you keeners who want to dive in deep, who want to go hard and, uh, and get ready for that, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, whatever your view is on hell, you are going to learn a lot. We're going to learn a lot about what the Bible has to say about judgment and about hell. And I think this is a, a really important topic and I'm looking forward to doing it. Uh, second important announcement is this. Uh, in six weeks, so Thursday, uh, March 25th, you wanna save the date, uh, it'll be a Thursday night, we're gonna do a virtual town hall meeting, okay? We're gonna take a break, because uh, we'll, we'll finish the Genesis series by then, we'll finish the hell stuff by then, uh, and then we're gonna, we're gonna have a virtual town hall meeting, we're going to unveil the new church name. We're going to unveil uh, the, the church vision statement, our mission, the, the, the four pillars that we're, that we're going to be focusing on that we feel God calling us to in this community. And we're really excited about that. There's going to be Q&A. You'll be able to ask questions. We'll show you our church constitution. And uh, at that time, too, you'll be able to ask questions about volunteering and how to get involved. We'll show you a timeline from there. Because, you know, we won't be able to start a whole church right on March 25th. That's the town hall meeting to tell you what's coming, all that sort of stuff. And then we'll give you uh, a bit of a timeline going forward, how long it's going to take us to get everything else in place. So really looking forward to that. Next week, the 18th, we're going to talk about hell and uh, looking forward to diving deep into the Bible on the topic of hell. And then on March 25th, virtual town hall meeting, uh, unveil the church name, church vision, And uh, really looking forward to those two dates. Um, Anyway, for now, let's go back uh, to our series here on identity, a study in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Okay. And now that we've gotten through the first three chapters of Genesis, it's going to go a bit quicker. uh, When, you know, after we come back from the hell series, uh, I'm going to in one message, I'm going to cover the flood, which is chapters six, seven and eight. And then I'll have one more message after that, which will cover 9, 10, and 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. And, uh, and today we're going to cover two chapters in Genesis, Genesis chapters four and Genesis chapter five. Okay. And we're going to, we're going to cover them in reverse order during this message. Genesis 5, oh joy, oh fun, is a whole chapter that's a genealogy. Okay. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so. We're going to cover that in the first part of the message, and then in the second part of the message, we're going to jump to Genesis chapter 4, which is the story of Cain and Abel, famous story, and we're going to end the message there, and there is some beautiful, beautiful stuff, powerful, life-changing stuff in that story about who God is and who we are. Let's pray, and then we will jump into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus... We want to glorify you with everything we do. We want to live our lives as a light for you, to be a blessing to the people around us, to be a blessing to this community, to be a blessing to our families and in our businesses, Jesus. We want to be salt and light. And so, Lord, today we're going to just preach your word again because that's the foundation we stand on. Jesus, help us to understand it and help us to apply it to our lives and set us free by your grace and truth, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. I want to start by uh, saying something before we jump right into Genesis chapter 5. And I want to make a statement. It's going to go up on a PowerPoint. And uh, I've been looking forward to saying this statement for the last couple of days. And so I'm just going to say it. Here, here's, what it here's what I wanted to say. It takes a village to read the Bible. It takes a village to read the Bible. And you say, what does that mean, okay? Um, What does that mean it takes a village to read the Bible? Let me tell you, let me me unpack that for just a moment because it's going to be really helpful in terms of how we view the Bible and in terms of some of the things I'm going to talk to you about in Genesis 5 with these genealogies. What do I mean when I say it takes a village to read the Bible? What I mean is this. You and I, and I've said this before and I'm going to say it many times, you and I cannot understand this book, the Bible, just on our own. Now when I say that, I know some of you are going to feel like, oh, don't, don't say that to me because I can just read the Bible and the Holy Spirit will speak to me and, and yeah, yeah, Okay, yes, I'm not saying that we can't read the Bible on our own. What I'm saying is we can't properly understand God's word on our own. And I'll prove it to you. First of all, this book that I'm holding before you is written in English and it has to be, otherwise I wouldn't be able to understand it. It's been translated from the original Hebrew, the original Greek, the original Aramaic. It's been translated into English. My ESV version took a hundred scholars. Okay? A hundred scholars worked on taking this from the original language to our language, Modern English, today. If it wasn't for those hundred very intelligent experts who've devoted their lives to understanding the original languages, interpreting it into our language, I wouldn't be able to read this. So... Uh, We need them. If you have an NIV Bible, it's another great Bible, another great translation. Uh, Over a 100 scholars worked on the NIV NIV translation as well for a period of 10 years. Okay? You can't understand God's word without help. But it goes beyond just the translation. Uh, We need help from historians and archaeologists to understand the original context, even once we read it in English. There's lots of things in there in the context. Sure, now I can read it in English, but there's lots of contextual things and historical things I can't understand unless dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of other scholars and intelligent, godly people who have devoted their lives to history and archaeology can bring us back to the context and help us to understand what those English words mean in their original context. It takes a village to understand the Bible. This is why we need the church, Okay? It's not enough to say, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I have my Bible. I'm just going to read it on my own and figure it out. On your own, you won't be able to properly understand this. Now, yes, we should all spend time on our own reading the Bible. We should get the word into us every day if possible because we need God's word inside of us, but we also need the church It takes a village to understand the Bible. And so it's when we come to church and then we we learn from other pieces of the body. We learn from scholars. We learn from preachers and teachers. We learn in our small groups as we discuss things and, and go over things and ask questions and challenge each other. It takes a village to properly understand the Bible. So yes, we need to read it on our own and get the word in us every day, but we need the whole church we need to go to church, we need to listen to teaching, we need the scholars to help us properly understand it. That's really important. Now you say, what does that have to do with today's message? Genesis 5, Genesis 4. Well, we're gonna like I said before, we're gonna spend the first part of this message talking about Genesis 5, which is just one big long genealogy. And normally, I know most of us when we read our Bibles, when we read the genealogies, that's when we want to fall asleep. Okay? Um, but one of the things, so I have to tell you a couple things about genealogies because we modern people in the West do not understand genealogies the way ancient people or biblical writers, when they wrote genealogies, they, they were doing more than what we consider genealogies today. And so I want to tell you two points that are going to help us understand some things. First point you need to know about genealogies in scripture is this number one Ancient genealogies were shaped to make theological and political points not just give an exact recording of all a person's ancestors, right? Because a genealogy is just, for those of you who don't know, a genealogy is just a list of all your ancestors. So so so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, gave birth to so-and-so, gave birth to so-and-so, gave birth to so-and-so down to you, okay? Now, the thing you have to understand, so nowadays in modern times, if we read a genealogy... The way we read a genealogy is that is a statement of exact facts. This person, then 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 this person. person. Ancient genealogies were not like that. They weren't just a list of facts. Ancient genealogies in Israel, in the Bible, in the ancient Near East countries, served a particular purpose, not just facts. They served, they were shaped to make theological and political points. Let me give you a, a, a really important example from the New Testament. For example, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. Okay. And you can go to, go to your Bible at some point. You could pause this message right now if you're, if you're watching it recorded and you could go and look these up in your, in your Bibles. But Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 record Jesus' genealogy. And the interesting thing you'll find is if you compare them, they're really, really different. Luke's genealogy records 56 generations from Abraham to Jesus. Matthew's genealogy records 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. And you go, how can that be? Did math- And in fact, if you compare Matthew's genealogy has exactly has some very interesting patterns in it. It has exactly 14 generations from Abraham to David, and then it has exactly 14 generations from David to the exile, and then it has exactly 14 generations from the exile to Jesus, so it's broken up into 14s. Very interesting, but the numbers are totally different than what you see in Luke. In fact, Matthew's genealogy is totally different than a genealogy that records the same sections in it uh, up to David and the exile in First Chronicles chapter 3. So it sure seems like Matthew is leaving things out. In fact, um, and, and yet Matthew seems to claim he hasn't missed any. I'm gonna put a verse up there, Matthew chapter one, verse 17. Check out this, check out this. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, uh from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I underline the word there, all. So all the generations, it, it seems like Matthew's claiming he hasn't missed any. And yet we know for sure he has missed some. He has left pieces out. And we go, not acceptable. Matthew's lying. Uh, actually, no. See, the genre of, the genre of genealogies in the Bible is different than the genre of genealogies today. Our expectations of a genealogy are different than an ancient person's genealogy than an ancient person's expectations. And an ancient person did not expect when they read a genealogy that it would necessarily have every single generation exact. Because genealogies were meant to do something more than just give bare facts, they were meant to preach theological and political points. So, for example, in Matthew, we'll just tie this up very quickly here. You'll see the 14, 14, 14 say, what is with Matthew's obsession with 14? And the answer is in the ancient Hebrew, in the Old Testament, which the, the, most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, uh, not, the ancient Hebrew alphabet, the letters in the alphabet doubled as numbers, which meant that everybody's name could also be associated with a number. If you just added up the letters of your name, because each of those letters doubles as a number, you could come up with a number. And so, your name in Hebrew would have a number associated to it. With it, my name would have a number associated with it. The interesting thing is, David's number—the name David in Hebrew—is uh, is equal to the number fourteen. So the, the King David's name is associated with the number 14. So when math, so Matthew, when he makes the genealogy, he actually doesn't care, and his readers don't expect him to necessarily put every single person in the genealogy. Matthew's making a deeper point. When he puts 14, 14, 14, 14, and his readers are going, ah, he's making a deeper point. His point is that Jesus is the son of David. And you say, well, why is that important that Jesus be the son of David? I'll tell you why it's important. Because in order to be the Messiah, Matthew's point is Jesus is the Messiah. And in order to be the Messiah, we know from the prophecies of the Old Testament, he has the Messiah has to be a, a, a descendant of David. In order to be king over all of Israel, he has to be a descendant of David. Matthew is making a theological and political point with his genealogy, and that's what ancient people expected would happen with genealogies, okay? So that's point number one about genealogies, okay? They're different, Don't treat a genealogy in the Bible the same way we would treat a genealogy today. Second thing you need to understand is that ancient genealogies used numbers flexibly and symbolically to make their theological and political points. Okay, now I'm going to show you this in the Old Testament. Okay, have you ever noticed how most of the, uh, you know, or not most, I should say, but how many of the most important characters in the Bible seem to live, seem, seem to have lifespans that always are rounded off symbolic numbers. Have you ever noticed that as you read through the, the Bible? I'm going to put up a chart that the most important characters in the Old Testament seem to die of old age at very rounded off symbolic numbers. Let me just show you a bunch, okay? So for example, they're all up there on the screen right now. Abraham lives to be 175 years old, Okay. Uh, which, and by the way, um, well, I won't get into that. That's going to take me on a rabbit trail. It's going to take me too far. But he's, exact, he's not 173. He's not 92. He's not 64, 175. Well, we know from Genesis 12, 4, he's 75 years old when God calls him. And then he lives exactly 100 more years following God. That's interesting. Joseph, Genesis 50 tells us, dies when he is exactly 110 years old. Not 112, not 98, again, not, not 109, 110. And you go, well, what's significant about 110? Well, I'm going to come back to that. Moses, but I want you to notice, as many of the most important characters in, in, in the Old Testament just happened to die at very rounded off and important symbolic numbers. I'm going to show you, 110 is a very symbolic number in the, old, in, in the ancient Near East at that time. Moses dies at exactly 120 years old. Okay, not 123, not 117, 120. And his life is perfectly broken up into segments of 40 years. And you recall that in the Old Testament, there are dozens of places, the number 40, it pops up everywhere, you know, in many, many places in the Old Testament and also in some places in the new, it is a very symbolic number. But Moses' life is just perfectly broken up into 40s. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years, and I've got all the scripture passages there on the chart. And if, if you want to take a picture of the screen or whatever, or pause it and look them up, you can do that. 40 years as a shepherd in Midian, 40 years as the leader of Israel, okay? Joshua, okay? Joshua lives exactly how many years? Same as Joseph, 110 years. Boy, that's interesting. 110, I mean, that's, that's a long life. By the way, a lot of people think that in Abraham's time, in that time of the, the you know, 3,500 years ago, people were living longer. Uh, no, they weren't. No, 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 they weren't. Uh, 3,500 years ago, uh, 4,000 years ago, you know, I I mean, Abraham would have been around 4,000 years ago. Joshua would have been about, uh, you know, 3,500, 3,000, 3,500 years ago. The average lifespan of a person in Egypt was late 30s, maybe 40. You know, you had lived a long full life if you made it to 50, and it was incredibly rare. 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, it was very rare for anyone to make it to 60, Okay, um, Joshua lives 110, just like Joseph. Well, that's interesting. Again, not 109, not 108, 110. Just happens to also to be a very symbolic number, which I'll explain in just a moment. David lives till he's 70, okay? He lived a hard life. But again, it's just, again, it's perfectly rounded off. 70, it's not 71, not 69. And his life too is, is perfectly broken up into very symbolic numbers. So he's 30 years old when he begins to reign. Not 31, not 32, he's 30. And remember, three is a, is a powerful symbolic number. Seven is a powerful symbolic number. 10 is a symbolic number. 40 is a very important, these are all numbers that appear again and again with a lot of symbolism throughout the Old Testament and, and even the new. Then he reigns in Israel exactly 40 years. Hmm, where have we see that number four. And even those 40 years are broken up into two parts, which both correspond to the numbers three and seven. He's seven years, he rules from Hebron, and 33 years, he's king from Jerusalem. And again, I've got all the passages there. So let me just, I don't wanna spend tons of time on this. I just, you have to see something here. We have to enter into the ancient mindset. The way they thought of genealogies and the way we think of genealogies is very different. And it's not our It's not our usage of genealogies that is the inspiration of God. The inspiration of the scriptures was the inspiration to the original writers. So we have to, as much as we can, the closer we get to what they would have understood it to be, the closer we get to what the Bible was inspired to teach us. Okay? I just want to take a quick, quick, you know, little rabbit trail. I find this interesting. Some of you will. Hang on. We'll get to the Cain and Abel story uh, shortly. But 110, for example, did you know that in Egypt, so I I just told you already, average lifespan of a person in Egypt 3,000 years ago, late 30s, uh, you know, to 40. Okay, if you, you know, you were really blessed if you lived to 50 and almost nobody made it 60 or 70. In fact, because of that, people who did make it to old age were highly respected in the ancient Near East. They were considered to be favored by God. To make it past 50, to make it to 60, they were revered because it was very rare. Um, now, interestingly enough, in this place, 110 came in 27 times in ancient Egyptian literature. Very important people, and it always has to do with important people, very important people are said to live exactly 110 years. Now, of course, scholars know there's no way all of those people made it to 110. I mean, very few people in our world today with modern health care and nutrition make it to 110. But in Egyptian writing, 27 times people are said, you know, very important people are said to live 110. That be, Why? Because that number had come to symbolize a couple of things. First of all, divine favor. When the number 110 was attached to someone that that was how long their life was, what that meant was divine favor. Now, Egypt didn't believe in the one true God, but for them, it was the gods had worked through this person. This person was, you know, in the divine image of God. And we've talked some of that, right? Uh, This person uh, was very blessed. This person led a blameless life, okay? So now we look at Joseph and Joshua, two guys who both just happen to live to 110. You say, are you saying Joseph and Joshua didn't actually live to 110? No, I, I'm not saying that. Maybe we'll get to heaven and we'll find out they actually did live to 110. Oh, cool, you actually lived to 110. I'm not saying that they couldn't have lived to 110. Here's what I am saying, no. That's, the original readers would have thought something very different than we do. We read it and go, oh, they, they lived exactly 110 years. An ancient person is seeing something far deeper. An ancient person is seeing, oh, 110 years. That means Joshua and that means Joseph had special divine favor. That means they were servants of God. God worked through these men. They're seeing something much deeper than we moderns are seeing. Why? Because ancient genealogies and the numbers in those genealogies were shaped to make theological and political points. Okay? It's really important. Now, let's go back to Genesis 5, and let me just show you a few numbers. We're not going to spend a ton of time. Some of you are going to love the numbers. Some of you aren't, but I want you to see there's some really, really beautiful stuff in here, okay? So let's just read verses three and four. We're not going to read the whole chapter because it's pretty repetitive Um, It's genealogy. Thank God for Timmy's. Verse three, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Okay? Now, there's some interesting numbers. Now, I just want to, I'm going to put up a little chart. And we're just going to look at some interesting numbers, and then I'm going to try to explain for you um, what some of these things mean. And then we're going to jump into the Cain and Abel story. But there's some important stuff for our biblical worldview here. Some interesting numbers that... Jump out to us immediately after we read, if you read all of Genesis chapter 5, here's some interesting numbers that jump out. First of all, there's exactly 10 generations from Adam to Noah, not 9, not 8, not 23, not 36, 10. And just to make sure we know that's not a coincidence, if we skip ahead to Genesis 11, we'll find that there's also exactly 10 generations from Noah's son Shem all the way to Abraham. Remember, just like with Matthew, remember 14, 14, 14, here we have 10 and 10, okay? And 10 was an important symbolic number. Other, other numbers that jump out at us immediately without having to know anything else, other numbers that jump out at us immediately, in Genesis five thirty one. Lamech lives exactly 777 years, okay? That's the opposite of 666. You know how in Revelation everybody freaks out, you know, the, the number of the, the beast, the Antichrist is 666. Seven, seven, seven is the opposite of that because seven is this perfect number. In the ancient world, it was the number of God, right? Seven days, seven years, you know, seven days in a week, seven days of creation. You know how Genesis 1 is is broken up. Seven is this number of God. And Lamech lives 777 years. Enoch, Genesis 5.23, lives exactly 365 years, okay? One year for every day of the calendar year. So There's interesting things, but those are just the obvious ones that jump out at us. If we go even deeper, okay? And again, I'm not going to spend tons of time on the math here, but you you just got to follow me here because this is an ancient, ancient book. There's some really cool stuff that we miss that's going on under the surface, okay? Let me put up a, a couple of more numbers for you. Each of the 10 men in the genealogy of Genesis 5 is assigned three numbers, okay? That's not very efficient, Like. It, 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 each man gets three numbers. So they were so-and-so when they had their first kid, then they lived so-and-so many more years for a grand total of so many years. So there's 10 men. That's it. That's a symbolic number. There's three numbers for each man. That's a symbolic number for a grand total of 30 numbers. Okay. 30 age numbers in Genesis chapter five. Now here's some really cool stuff. All of, out of all of those 30 numbers, all 30 of those numbers fit a couple of patterns. First of all, they all end in zero, two, five, seven, or nine. Okay. Now, at first, that might not strike you to think, well, is that a big deal? It really is a big deal because that's only half of the possibilities. Uh, and the chances of that happening by accident are less than one in 100 million. Let me put it in, 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 in terms maybe that make a little more sense to you. Imagine if you had a coin and you were going to flip it to get heads or tails. So you flip it, you get heads, one time you get tails. And imagine someone says, okay, uh, how, how, you know, what's your chances of flipping 10 heads in a row? And the answer is the chances are not very good. In fact, I, I try it at home try and flip a coin and get 10 in a row that are all heads without one tail in there. Uh, chances are it, you're not going to get it. It's not going to happen in a day. It's going to take you a long time to figure it out. Try flipping that coin 30 times in a row and getting heads every single time without a single tail in there. That actually will take you hundreds of millions of tries before you would ever have a chance of getting, you know, before it would ever happen even once. And if it did happen, you would think to yourself, this coin is rigged. If you flipped 30 times in a row and you got heads every time, you would think to yourself, this coin is rigged. There's no way that can happen just by chance. The same is true of these 30 numbers in Genesis chapter 5. There is some deeper math. Now, it gets even crazier than that. Not only are all, do all of these numbers end in only five different endings, okay, Every single one of these numbers can be expressed. Now, again, some of you aren't into math. We're just about through the math. But some of you are going to love this, okay? And have some awe at the word of God. More than 3,000 years old. And there's some really cool math hidden in this thing, okay? Every single one of those 30 numbers can be expressed as a combination of just two numbers, 60 and 7 in terms of months and years, okay? Now, of course, we know seven already is a very symbolic number, 60. Did you know that in the ancient Near East, they didn't work off of a decimal system like we do? Like uh, decimal system means we, we work off of a base 10, 10, 20, 30, 40, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. 10, 100 is 1,000. Our whole number system is based off of 10. In the ancient Near East, they didn't work off of a base 10 number system. They had what's called a sexagesimal system. Sexagesimal. That's fun to say. Which means they worked off of a base 60 system. By the way, that base 60 system from the ancient Near East was started by the Babylonians. It still impacts our lives today. Guess what parts of our lives are governed by a 60 system? Every day we are governed by time and we break our time into what units? 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour. That ultimately is still a leftover from thousands of years ago in the Babylonians and their sexagesimal number system. These 30 numbers in Genesis 5 are not random numbers. They are very intentional numbers. And all of them can be divided by some combination in terms of months and years of 60 and 7. It's brilliant. For those of you keeners who want to go deeper, there's a whole article on this because I'm going to leave the math behind now. For all the rest of you who don't care about math, just know this. It's cool. It's really, really cool. For those of you who want to go deeper, you're a keener. You want to dig deeper. There's a great article. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff you can look up. But a great article I found which explains this in a good way is called Long Lifespans in Genesis, literal or symbolic. It's on the Biologos Website, I'll just flip, you know, pop it up on the screen there for a second. It will also be in the message handouts, which I always attach, uh, we always attach the message notes for afterwards. So you can go and look that up. Anyway, here's the point. Some really cool stuff is going on with these numbers in Genesis 5. Now, the question is, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? Okay, are you ready for this? What? Does all this crazy math and these cool numbers in Genesis 5, what does it all mean? Because we know, and scholars have written extensively about this, these numbers are not there by accident. So what does it all mean? You ready for it? We don't know. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you're like, you built this all up for that to tell us we don't know? Yeah, I'm going to make a really important point here in just a moment. You're like... You just showed us all that and then you said, we don't know. We have no clue. No clue. Scholars speculate about all kinds of things. We know the numbers are not an accident. We can, see the sim- we can see that there's symbolism there. We can see that there's intentionality. We can see that the writer is making some kind of a point, which no doubt the original readers and hearers could get. We just don't know what it is. We literally do not know what it is. And you say, you went to all that trouble to show us all that stuff. And, and, and then you can't even tell us what it means. You must be crazy. And so now I want to make a point. I want to make a really important point about the Bible. What I just showed you should do two things. First of all, it should cause you to worship. There's some God because his word has some really cool stuff in it. But second of all, it should cause us to be a bit humble, more than a bit humble. This book is messy. And there's a lot of stuff in here we actually can't figure it out. And when we get to sections like that that we can't figure it out, let me tell you something. Don't build your faith on some fake level of confidence that you know what a passage means when we don't really know what it means. Okay? And I'm making a really important point here. Let me me draw this out a little more. What is our faith founded on? How do we read the scriptures? Okay, I want to just throw a couple of questions up on the screen to help us think this through. And then I'm going to make sense of this. I'm going to make sense of it. I promise you, I'm going to make some sense. Let me ask you something. Is your faith built on the primary teachings of Jesus? See, there are primary teachings in the Bible, things that are repeated over and over and over again in many clear passages that are obvious. And then there are many passages in here which are obscure which are difficult to understand, which are messy, and which are sometimes impossible to understand. Did you know that? There's different kinds of passages in the Bible. Let me tell you something right now. Not all the passages in here are equally important. Some of you are going, "Ah, ah, how can you say that? It's the word of God. I'm not saying we don't need them all. The fact that God has given us this book means I want the whole thing. But let's face it. If you could only have one section of the Bible, don't pick Leviticus. Pick the Gospel of John or Matthew or Romans. Don't pick the book of Leviticus because you know what? Leviticus is important, but it's not as important. And you know, Paul actually, Paul actually talks about this, okay? Uh, Titus chapter three, verse nine. And this is so important, okay? Because do you know how many Christians walk away from their faith and I'm going to give you a stat in just a moment. Uh, in fact, I'll just throw a bit of it right now. 59%, did you know right now, young people, 59% of young people who grew up in the church in North America, this is from a, a Barna study, George Barna, 59% of young people who grew up in the church right now in North America walk away from their faith after the age of 15. Okay? 25% of them do it because of science, you know, you know, reasons of they think science and the Bible conflict, 23% of them walk away directly, explicitly because they are tired of the evolution versus Christianity debate. And you say, why is this important? I'm going to tell you why. Nobody should lose their faith over that stuff. Nobody should lose their faith over uh, fighting with someone at university. Well, and someone says, well, so-and-so lived 900 years. And, and the person at the university says, well, that's not possible. And the Christian says, no, absolutely. And I, now I have to build my faith. Actually, the Bible is God's word, which means it is without error in all it means to teach. But are you reading the Bible properly? Do you know that you understand it? Do you see what Paul says in, in Titus chapter 3, verse 9? okay. But avoid foolish controversies. Look at this. Genealogies. Genealogies. Titus 3.9. Dissensions and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Don't build your faith. Now, Emma, are you saying, well, so you're saying you don't believe Genesis 5? No, no. I 100% believe everything that's in the Bible. What I'm saying is. We can't be 100% confident of what Genesis 5 is trying to tell us. Maybe we'll get to heaven and God will say, I did a miracle and I had so and so live to 777 years and so and so live to 365 years and I just help, I just miraculously helped them live to these exactly symbolic numbers. If that's true, awesome. God can do that. He can. I'm just not convinced because we don't, we know that ancient genealogy writers played with numbers in order to make deeper points. Why would I build my faith on that having to be literally true if I can't be confident it's supposed to be literally true? It might be supposed to be symbolically true. Do you you see what I'm saying? Look at what Paul says. I want to show you, by the way, by the way, so important. I keep going back to this example and I'm going to keep doing it and I want us to get it. This has happened before in Christian history. 500 years ago, many Christians were convinced that the Bible taught that the, earth, that the sun revolves around the earth. They were convinced. 500 years ago, guys like Martin Luther, the Bible teaches. And they would have told you, if the, if it, if, if the earth revolves around the sun, then the Bible is false. People would have lost their faith. They were willing to put other Christians in jail Because they said, the Bible says. Of course, it's a little embarrassing. Within 100 years, pretty much everybody kind of sheepishly agreed. Well, I guess we didn't quite interpret the scriptures correctly, did we? And my point is, why would we make mountains out of molehills? When it comes to the age of the earth, when it comes to some of these things where where we say with 100% confidence, the Bible says, are we actually confident we know exactly what the Bible says, or are we confidently interpreting it wrong? We need more humility in some of these obscure, difficult passages. Let me show you one more passage here from Paul, and I'm gonna show you the difference between major and minor. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay? First importance. You know what Paul's saying there? There are things in the Bible that are of first importance, and there are things in the Bible that are not of first importance. First importance is the clear teachings of Scripture that are repeated over and over and over again, the clear themes, the repeated patterns, the clear teaching, the primary teaching. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose again. How do you save from your sins? What is right? What is wrong? All of that. Clear teachings, that's primary. That's worth fighting for. Then there are a whole lot of passages in here that are hard to understand, that are not clear, that are obscure. We can worship God as we read those. We can wonder at them. When I read Genesis 5, I wonder. I go, wow, God, there's some cool stuff in here. I don't get it. But I'm looking forward to getting it someday. I'm looking forward to heaven. And maybe we'll get to heaven and God will say, ha, I miraculously kept those guys alive for those numbers. Or maybe he'll tell us, actually, those numbers meant this or they meant this. And I'll go, oh, well, I'll go, oh, that's incredible. We could see there was something there. We just didn't know what it was. Major versus minor importance. Let me just put one more uh, table up there and then we dive into Cain and Abel. Major issues. For example, here are the major issues where it's clear teaching of scripture. It's repeated over and over again. Here's a major issue worth fighting for. Who created the universe? Who created the earth? God did. Clear teaching of scripture. Repeated over and over and over again. Old Testament, New Testament minor issues that we can disagree over, that nobody should lose their faith over. When did God create the earth? How did God create the earth? The Bible's actually not clear about that. There's lots of things, and we've talked a little bit about that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. If we get into the original context, there's lots of things going on there. Christians can have different points of view. I think it's really important, parents, when you teach your kids growing up, Do not make their faith rise and fall on how old the earth is. Don't do it. Don't even make their faith rise and fall on whether or not evolution happened. Even if you hate evolution, even if you don't believe in it, that's totally cool. You don't need to believe in evolution. Absolutely not. But what happens if your kid goes to university and we've seen this? Remember what George Barna said? 59% of young people are leaving the church after 15. 25% of them are citing science. They go to university. They see some scientific arguments, and they think they have to throw out Jesus because of the age of the earth, don't put the foundation in the wrong place. They should be able to go to university, learn all the science they want, and whether they change their mind or not about the age of the earth doesn't even matter because that has nothing to do with the primary teaching of scripture, which is Jesus is God. God created the earth. For that, there's lots of evidence. Really passionate about that, as you can tell. (laughs) You know, end times, major, Jesus will return to earth someday, death and evil will be defeated. Clear teaching of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, repeated over and over and over again. Minor issues that we can't figure out that Christians disagree about. Who will the Antichrist be? When will Jesus come back? Who is the heart of Babylon? Fun things to discuss. Fun things to study. Fun things to look into. Don't build your faith on it. Don't break fellowship over it. You know, gospel genealogies major issue: Jesus is a descendant of David. That proves he's the Messiah. Okay, or no, that's one element of him being the Messiah. Minor issue is every generation included, and do the genealogies match up exactly? Well, they don't because ancient writers use genealogies in flexible ways. Minor issue: Genesis genealogies. Did people literally live to be 900 years old? Now, some of you might be convinced they did. Some people, some of you might be totally convinced. Yeah, they lived at 777 years. That's totally cool. Don't build your faith on it, though. Don't, don't do like what Christians have done in history like 500 years ago where they built their faith on the sun must revolve around the earth. Don't do it. There's obscure things. There's important things. Now, let's go to the story of Cain and Abel, okay? okay. And I'm going to show you, I want to end this message on grace. Oh, God's grace is so good. Let's read the story of Cain and Abel. We got uh, 10 minutes here. Now, Adam knew his wife. It's an interesting way of saying they had sex. And she conceived and bore Cain. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. Abel's a shepherd. Cain's a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Okay. So Abel brings an offering. God's pleased. Cain brings an offering. God is not pleased. Okay. Why is God not pleased? Has nothing to do with plant versus animal. Okay. Okay. Uh, I could show you many scriptures, we just don't have time. In fact, God didn't even, there's actually a place in the Old Testament where God says he doesn't like animal sacrifice. It was just necessary for a while. But he he never loved it. And so Cain bringing plants was was not the big deal. Here's the big deal. Abel brought of the best first fruits. Cain did not. Okay? It's about wholeheartedness. Remember, what's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course, with it, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So, what do we learn from this? You want to please God with your life? God did not expect Abel to bring plants because Abel was a shepherd. God did not expect Cain to give him sheep because Cain was a farmer. God expected Abel to give to God out of who Abel was and what Abel had. God expected Cain to give to him out of who Cain was and what Cain had. Same is true for you and me. What does God want you to give him? He wants you to give to him out of who you are and what you have. Who you are and what you have. I just, I just identified four things. And we, we, I mean, you, on, you can go on and get up a whole message on this. Four things. How do you give to God out of who you are and what you have? So for example, has God made you a musical person? If God has given you musical talent and ability... The worst thing you could do is spend all your life watching TV and doing other stuff and never developing your musical gifting because the world needs to be blessed by your musical gifting. So use your gifting for God. We give to God out of who we are. So give back to God the gift of music. If you're a business person and a leader, give God back to God, He's given you a gift. Give back to him by leading, you know, well, by building a good business. Okay. So the first thing is give to God. Don't waste your talent. Okay. Use your talents, passions, and gifts to make the world a better place for the glory of God. You know, if, if you are an engineer, or an architect, or, or someone that builds that sort of thing, do you know how you worship God? God gave you an ability to do that. You know how you worship him? Build buildings that are good for people, that are good for the community, that are good for the environment. Build buildings that bring beauty and joy and love. That's when you do that, you're giving worship back to God. Abel brings sheep, Cain brings plants. You have building ability, bring building ability to God. Worship God. Don't hide it. Okay? Don't hide your passions and gifts. Second, Love the people in your sphere of influence. As you use your talents, abilities, gifts, passions for God, whether it be music, whether it be sports, whether it be a hobby, whether it be building, whatever it is, designing. As you use your talent and ability gift for God, and maybe you can't do it in the workplace because things just don't always work out that easily. But So maybe you do it with your hobbies. But as you use your talent and ability for God, as you'll get influence. People will gather around you. People will be blessed by you. People will be helped. People will enjoy it. Okay, as that happens, love and bless the people around you. It's the greatest commandment. Love God, love people. That's how you worship God with your gift. So if you have a music gift, that doesn't mean you just use your music at church. That's a great way to worship God with your music gift. But that's not, that's far and away not the only way. Start a band. Join the the opera, you know, be in the, the orchestra. Make beautiful music that makes the world a better place. And then love the people around you. Which brings us to number three, which is going to open up doors for you to share the love of Jesus with people who have been touched by your talents, passions, and gifts. Now you'll be able to speak the name of Jesus in your area of influence coming out of the things he's given you. You're giving it back to him and showing the people around you love. Now the door is open for you to say, yeah, you want forgiveness for your sins? You want grace? You need to get to know Jesus. I know him. He's incredible. He's incredible. And you worship Jesus by telling others about him in your sphere of influence. And fourthly, give generously, regularly, always, out of the things God has blessed you uh, with. So, so important. You know, it's past Christmas. I'm going to throw a slide up there, a picture. Uh, it's past Christmas, LeDon and, and I and our kids, we, uh, we took some time, we educated ourselves. Did you know right now, There's a tiny country uh, called Yemen, uh, which is in the Middle East, which is right now probably the worst humanitarian crisis in the entire world. More than 16 million people are in danger of starving. And 24 million people are in an intense crisis. There's been war. There's food shortages. It's awful. And for just a little bit of money, you can make a huge difference feeding people. So we took time as a family. We educated ourselves about it. And then the kids just willingly, we didn't make them. Giving should never be, it should never be forced. We said, what do you guys want to give? Each one gave some amount out of the money they had. And they were quite generous. And then me and LaDawn did too. And it brought so much joy to our lives to be able to give. You know, to give to church, to give to missions, to give to the poor. LaDawn and I, every paycheck, we budget a certain number and from that number, that's just our number for whoever comes up that's going to have a need. We want to bless someone. It brings so much joy. You want to worship God with who you are? Use your talents and abilities and gifts to make the world a better place. Tell Jesus about him and then give generously. And giving generously to the people around you, to people in need, to his church is going to catalyze something in your heart to live joyfully and use your gifts and abilities for him. It's huge. Let's carry on. That's what Abel did. He gave out the best of who he was and what he had. He gave the best. Cain didn't give the best. So we carry on with the story. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, well by the way, I want you to notice. Remember last week in the, in the message on Genesis 3? Notice how God doesn't start by blaming. He starts by listening. He asks questions. I love that. I love that. Okay? He gives Cain a voice. Cain Cain is, you know, being tempted to do something very wrong and God gives him a voice. Why are you angry? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. By the way, I want you to notice something else here. God knows what Cain is being tempted to do and I want you to notice he does not stop Cain. Now, some of you might think that's disturbing. Why doesn't he stop Cain from doing this? I'm going to tell you something that's so important about the God we serve. He is not in the business of controlling people. He's not in the business of controlling people. He he comes and he asks Cain questions. He encourages him to do right. By the way, parents, we could do a whole parenting series, a whole parenting book on this. If God doesn't control Cain, parents especially parents with adult children, with teenage children, with young adult children. Don't control your kids either. You can't always keep them from making bad choices. In fact, as your kids get older and older, you should be increasingly taking the controls off so that when they reach adulthood, you are launching them into the world. You can give them wise advice You can encourage them, but don't control them. Don't use fear, manipulation, money, or withhold love in order to control your kids. Give them advice, but let them go. God doesn't, he's not in the business of control. And so we get to verse 8. Cain doesn't listen to God, though. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. This is premeditation. He invites him out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cold-blooded murder. This is wickedness. This is sin. This is an awful, awful thing Cain has done. Can you imagine luring a sibling of yours out into some place and then killing them in cold blood? Terrible, wicked thing. But then what happens next? The next couple of verses are just going to blow your mind. The Lord said to Cain, now notice again, Cain is a cold-blooded murderer and God knows everything. He knows exactly what Cain has done. He still gives Cain a voice. He still starts with questions and listens first. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Notice the dignity. God still gives dignity to Cain. Cain's a murderer. And God still treats them with dignity. Every time you give someone a voice, even when they've done wrong, you are giving them dignity. Every person should be given dignity because they're made in the image of God. I didn't say respect. Respect is earned. Dignity is something that's inherent in all of us. But now this is the part, this is my favorite part of the whole message. It's right at the end. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you're cursed curse from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now look at this. And by the way, that's just a repeat of the curse of Genesis 3. Now here's the part that I, I just love. Now Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Can you believe the gall of this guy? You just killed your brother. The blood is still fresh on your hands. You planned it. You carried it out. You did it in cold blood. You were a wicked, awful person. What you just did was terrible. And yet Cain has the gall to say to God, my punishment is too much for me to bear. You deserve to be killed too. God's already being merciful on you by not killing you. And yet you have the audacity to say to God, my punishment is too hard for me to bear. Let me tell you something. Cain knew God better than many of us as Christians. Cain knew God better than many of us as Christians. You know how I know that? Because he dared to ask that question. He knew something about God that King David also knew. He knew something about God that a lot of Christians don't know. He knew that even after doing something so wicked that he could cry out to God for mercy and grace and God would listen to him. Do you know how many of us, many of you who are watching this video myself, as I'm even teaching this, do you know how many Christians I encounter who are so full of guilt and condemnation and they feel like God doesn't listen to them and it's over the dumbest stuff. They feel like they haven't had enough devotions. They, haven't, they feel like they haven't prayed enough. They feel like they haven't been good enough. Well, all of those are important things to do. We want to grow in having a a healthy devotional life. We want to grow in living right. But we walk around. Oh, God can never answer my prayers. God doesn't care about me. And Cain, a cold-blooded murderer, is daring enough to say, my punishment is too much for me to bear. And he cries out for grace. And look, God gives it to him. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, look at this. I mean, if you were God, would you give Cain grace? Probably not. Thank God, you and I aren't God. I want you to see the extravagant, overabundant, unmerited, undeserved grace of God here in Genesis chapter four. The Lord said to him, not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. That's an act of grace. Remember the first act of grace in the Bible was Genesis three, God clothed Adam and Eve. Second act of grace in the Bible, Genesis four, God puts a mark on Cain to protect Cain. Lest any who found him should attack him. That is undeserved grace. That is unmerited favor. Cain doesn't deserve zip from God other than death. That's what he deserves. And this cold-blooded murderer, the blood hasn't even had a chance to dry, cries out to God and says, my punishment is too much for me to bear. And God says to Cain, I'm not going to abandon you either. And he puts a mark on him and protects him. There's consequences for Cain's sin. He suffers consequences. The ground is cursed. I mean, he gets a repeat of the curse that happened in Genesis 3. He's forced to wander. Our sin always brings destruction. The consequences of sin are always painful and bad and harsh and death. But God puts his mark of protection on Cain. God says, I'm not abandoning you, Cain. That's undeserved grace. Friends, today I just feel the Holy Spirit wants to extend to you through the TV screen, through the computer, through the phone, whatever you're watching on right now. He wants to extend to you undeserved grace. We serve a God who is in the business of generously pouring out undeserved grace. Peter denied Jesus three times. Is there anything worse than denying Jesus? Is there anything worse than denying Jesus? David was a murderer. Moses was a murderer. David was also an adulterer and a bunch of other things. Undeserved grace. And if those guys could call out to the Lord boldly, how much more you and I who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, his son. I want us to take a moment now. I just want us to quiet ourselves and I want us to reflect. And I want the Holy Spirit to touch you with his undeserved, your, his undeserved grace. Let him pour it out on you today. Call out to him. Do you know there's a prayer? Some of you need to pray a prayer this week. Why don't you close your eyes and let's just go into an attitude of prayer. Some of you Need to pray this prayer because you are going through consequences for your sins that are so difficult and you feel ashamed. And you can actually pray a prayer from the Bible from Cain. Not many people pray the Cain prayer. You can pray to God today. My punishment is too much for me to bear. Why don't you pray that prayer to the Holy Spirit right now? My punishment is too much for me to bear and receive God's unmerited favor and his undeserved grace into your life again. You can't earn it. It's just the kind of God he is. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Bless every person hearing this message and watching this message today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.